Welcome, and thank you for joining us to another episode of our podcast powered by EI2. We are excited for our first live audience recording of our podcast. Also welcome to those who have joined us online. Today we are celebrating 10 years of women in technology of the heartland with a panel with the topic of how to future ready your career. We have a panel of women who will be speaking to this topic. My name is Julia Welna and I will be the panel moderator. I have some great women with me today and we will start with introductions. I'm an IT project manager here at Farm Credit Services of America. I have been here for three and a half years. And now I'll let the panelists introduce themselves. Just give your name and a little something about yourself or your career. Jen, I'll go ahead and let you go. All right. Hi, everybody. My name's Jen Doan. I lead one of our software development teams here at Farm Credit Services of America. Our team is mainly focused on all of the logic that goes into a loan decision. So aggregating um, all of the credit characteristics and all of those things and kind of outputting an answer as far as a yes, no, maybe, that sort of thing. So been with Farm Credit for about three and a half years. And prior to that, I worked across the street, ironically enough, at Mosaic, which is a nonprofit in town here, led their software development team for 11 years. So great to be here. Thank you. Hi, my name is Natalie Gertis. I am a software developer. I've been in IT for 19 to 20 years. I'm losing track, just like my age. I don't want to count. <laughs> I'm also a leader of at Farm Credit, a cross-functional BT innovation work group. So you'll hear some of that. I'm going to share some tips about that. But warning, I can be part quirky and part dork. So it's my <laughs> intro. <laughs> You're in IT. That's what, we're, that's what we do. I'm Robin Messerly. I'm Chief Information Officer for Nebraska Furniture Mart, and I've been there for 21 years, and I'm actually considered kind of one of the newbies. Uh, there's a lot of tenure at NFM, and I've been in technology for my whole career, so for 34 years, seen a lot of changes along the way. Happy to be here tonight. Thank you so much for introducing yourself. Each of our panelists are going to take a few minutes to discuss their thoughts on our topic. We're going to answer questions from our live audience, so we'll just go ahead and have you ask the question, and I'll repeat it. And then also online, if you want to submit questions through the chat, we'll be monitoring that also. All right, Jen, I'm going to go ahead and let you start. Awesome. Well, thank you. So I'd like to approach tonight's topic on how to future ready your career from a software development perspective, naturally enough and talk about how leaders, teams, and teammates can set themselves up for the highest level of success. And so really, uh, that boils down to four key success factors that I want to talk about tonight. One is making sure that you've got a technology vision that is aligned to your business strategy. Second is creating focus for your development teams by aligning on one set of priorities so that your team can deliver faster and realize that value more quickly. The third one is to embrace agility to deliver business and technology value incrementally, so not biting the whole elephant off at once, and then also enabling the adaptation to change in the environment from a business and technology perspective. And then the last one is adopting a continuous learning mindset. As technology continues to evolve, it's more and more important for us to keep learning, to stay relevant in the market, and to adapt our technology strategy. So I'll start off with kind of describing to you guys the current software development landscape here at Farm Credit and the different demands that are coming into our teams. So the first type of work that's coming into our teams is initiated by the business, of course. And that's, you know, the I guess the key there is delivering value to the business that achieves organizational strategy. The second type of work that comes into our teams is kind of homegrown from, from the technology side of things, and that includes 
support and maintenance of our existing critical business functions, technology upgrades, mitigating, uh, mitigating sorry, security vulnerabilities, et cetera. And then third and lastly, not, not least though, research and innovation. So again, our need to continuously learn and adapt to changes in the market. So how do you succeed in all of these areas? It can kind of feel like you're spinning a lot of plates, especially with constant changes to business needs, evolving technology, et cetera. You can really feel like we're trying to hit a moving target, right? It's really incredibly difficult to succeed at all of these things at once. And I think the key here is the ability to deliver incrementally against one set of priorities. So what that's going to do is create focus for your teams. You're going to realize value faster with less context switching. And then you're going to be able to adapt to changes in technology and in the market because you're developing in incremental chunks and able to adapt along the way. So we rely on our business and product teammates here at Farm Credit to tell us what to focus on by prioritizing work based on the value it provides, kind of butted up against the cost to deliver. So kind of an ROI situation. A lot of the time, though, our business and product teammates don't get that full picture of all of the other things that our teams do. And so what ends up happening then is you get two sets of priorities, right? You've got your business priorities and all of the work that the business wants you to execute against. And then you've got this mounting pile of tech debt that keeps accumulating along the way that is a high priority to your development teams and they really want to do the work, but it's just not visible to the business and the business doesn't understand that impact. And so that's often the priority list that gets left behind, right? Uh, so it's our job in technology to create that full picture so that the business can make the right decisions for the company with a full understanding of what the impacts are and the risks. So we'll start with how work comes in from the business. Our technology strategy is in direct alignment with our business strategy. So this gives our team teams a framework for execution, and it ensures that we're providing the right skills and tools that they're going to need to get the job done. So one of our strategic initiatives currently is to create an omni-channel digital customer experience. And so what that means is our customers can engage with us when they want, how they want, and get a consistent experience. On the architecture side of that, we've got an initiative to implement a micro front end infrastructure to host that from a digital perspective. So once all of those strategic initiatives are identified, they're broken down into one or more epics that go to our enterprise prioritization team. And so that's when we're looking at what's the maximum value that's going to be provided to the organization. From a technical side, the work that's coming in is kind of around maintenance and modernization. So again, we've got a responsibility to create awareness and visibility around the business impacts of aging software. Ultimately, the choice to modernize technology is a business decision because the business is going to get the impact either way, whether we choose not to or we choose to modernize. And we need to help the business understand basically the risks and the impact of doing nothing, right? So what are the risks that are introduced when we choose not to modernize technology when we continue to invest on the business side? One way to do this is to create cyclical upgrade patterns for software based on support life cycles. So let's say, for instance, you're running an Angular app uh, online, it's public facing, and you're on AngularJS, which is, I think, pretty recently out of support. It's our job to let the business know what security vulnerabilities we've opened ourselves up to by choosing not to upgrade, right? So we're making those risks visible. And it's hard to as assign a tangible dollar value to that, but as soon as you get into a situation where you're like jeopardizing the reputation of a company in the market, it becomes a pretty high priority. Another way 
is to measure system performance through things like non-functional requirements. So if we, have a, if we have a goal to grow the business, we need to make sure that our systems are scalable enough to handle the additional load. So we can look at things like API response times, uh, system availability, scalability, et cetera, and kind of assign a red, yellow, green in terms of how performance our systems are. And if we get to a point where at Farm Credit we, we want to obviously grow our business and grow in market share, we need to be able to sustain that increased load. And when we get to a point where we can't do that, again, that's something that we need to be responsible of bringing those risks and impacts back to the business so that they have a full picture of uh, all of the work that comes into our teams and can make the right decisions. Uh, last, again, but certainly not least, is research and innovation. Uh, we need the dedicated time to sharpen and expand our toolkits through learning and research and innovation. So at Farm Credit, we dedicate five development sprints per year solely for research and innovation. Uh, we don't commit to any business features in that time, and we use it to do proofs of concept, rapid prototyping, learning, and identifying new trends in the market and how we can use them to gain competitive edge. All of, those, all of the outputs of these innovation sprints, we call them innovation and planning sprints, then feed back into technical strategy so that we can continue to adapt as the technology market changes. So in closing, I will kind of restate the four key factors that I, can, that I feel can help lead development teams to success. One is aligning your technical strategy with your business strategy. Two, create focus uh, by aligning on one set of priorities for your team to deliver faster. Three, embrace agility and incremental value delivery and allow yourself the ability to adapt to change. And then four, adopt a continuous learning mindset. As technology continues to evolve, it'll be more and more important for us to keep learning and stay relevant. Thank you, and I think with that, I will pass it on to Natalie. Thank you, Jen. <laughs> I agree with all of the above as a dev, and like some of the key things that I hear is there's a lot of competing priorities. It's hard to say how can you make time for innovation. I'm gonna give you the dev spiel, but really quick, when I look back at 10 years, since you guys are all celebrating 10 years, <laughs> There's been a lot of change, and I'm going to state some of the obvious. As a dev, in my experience, there's been technology-driven change of um, maybe some of these you guys can relate to, moving away to mainframe, from, from mainframe systems, moving to Angular, microservices, containers, newer, well, not newer, but newish, AI and power, business intelligence. Like, there's a lot of technology change. I'm sure you guys can think of others in the past 10 years. But it's not just technology. It's approach on how we work in the IT space. Um, there's been a shift to product management or product discovery, a focus on customer experience, and one thing you heard, omnichannel. And we, from how we work, there's waterfall to agile to safe is what we're doing to firm credit. So that's just some of them, and I'm sure you guys can think of more in the 10 years. So I'm going to state the obvious. We know that technology changes rapidly. We know we need to be competitive. So with knowing that technology approaches are constantly changing and to stay competitive, how can we add future value for our business so we can continue to evolve and innovate and not fall off the bandwagon? Cliche, we don't want to be blockbusters, right? <laughs> so, and the same concept comes to us personally. So, and I will say this, finding the space and time to do innovation, I think is one of the keys. As a software developer, a leader of the FCSA's BT Innovation Group, enabling and being a part of innovation is something I'm like super passionate about. 
I can talk to you guys a lot about it. <laughs> but I've narrowed it down to three tips that I want to talk to you about. But one thing to take away is developers, us developers, and people in general, we're engaged when we can do something different. And that's the bottom line of being innovative. Now, the twist is how can you do something different with purpose? So um, with that in mind, I'm going to give you my three tips that come to mind. Um, number one, Jen, which you picked up on, is this sounds very obvious, but make time and space for doing something different to be innovative. Because at the core of being innovative, the key starting point is simply doing something different with purpose. But if you don't make the time and space for it, everyday life is just going to get in the way, right? Oh, we need to get this done. We need to get this story done. Kids at home, like it's always going to interfere unless we're deliberate about making that time. Specific ways that we can do that. Here's the easier one. There's microwaves, but even in our everyday work and what we do, when we see an opportunity to speak up and say, hey, there's a better way of doing this, or can we take a stopping point and try something different? Or if you're in a different position, if you can identify it and support that to happen. And it can happen as simply as, okay, let's do a POC in that project in your everyday mission of what you're currently, that's the business prioritized work, right? Or doing a spike story. So they're like, be deliberate and aware of those opportunities where you can do something different. Then the other one is the dedicated time to experiment and learn. And you can do this in microwaves. You can do it within your team. You can do it at the organizational level. Before we went to the safe model, the, the development team that I run, we're like, hey, let's be passionate about this. Let's make time. We, we've tried different frequencies. But one frequency we did was like one or two dedicated days a month where we're just experimenting or learning on something and sharing that back. Now that it's awesome that we have the IP sprints and safe, you're like, ooh. <laughs> um, so that's another opportunity. But if we don't use it and work with our team on it, then, you know, that's lost time where we could do something. Other ideas is a hackathon. We've done that successfully, and it's just amazing. Even in the small microwaves, if you make time, you're unleashing the talent and the skills, and you're building muscles of experimentation, and it's awesome what things that can come out of it. I feel like I'm taking too long. Tip two. (laughs) There are structured ways and approaches to experiment and bring those talents out in your team. It's not just like blah going out there. That's the whole with purpose. I'm just going to quickly name some suggestions is brainstorming together as a team on ideas or problems that you have. Using design thinking framework. There's It's too much to be able to talk about, but there's a lot of great things that you can pull, even nuggets. Ones that I personally like is using the priority model, really framing the true problem, and having a real hypothesis and success outcomes of what you're trying to test. Also the incremental that helps with the incremental aspect of it. Other ones is design sprint. That's a little older. I'm leaning more towards the design thinking practices. One thing as a, a dev to encourage is like, how can you do it where it's evidence or behavior driven, where you can really evaluate the success of what you're trying to experiment or understand? Just the big thing is just start. Give the opportunity. At first, it might fail. It might feel messy. Because anytime doing something different, it's not, it's not easy or the way that you work as a team on an experiment. But ultimately, you can keep evolving and growing. And I've seen that in our development team. And it builds the muscles on how you work together to experiment. 
And then the one thing, don't forget to bring back what you've learned, even if it doesn't go anywhere, right? Because we want to share and, and build off of the learning that we've had. So tip three, know how you can play a role in experimenting and innovation and surround yourself with diverse people. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to confess, I'm a dev, I love coding, but I'm not always the sharpest in the newest technology out there. Ideator, even though I'm the leader of the innovation work group, is the lowest on my strengths finder. <laughs> <laughs> so like, I know that that's a weakness of mine, but I'm passionate in that space, right? So I know that I want to surround myself. One of the reasons I moved to Farm Credit, I want to surround myself like, oh, the people that are working in the newer technology, those smart people that I can like, oh, they're working in functional. There's a fu That's cool that there's functional programming <laughs> session happening. And then I can be influenced by that. Or I can like connect the dots like, hey, that's cool and that's cool. How can you solve that problem that way? Because I have that optimizing side to me. So I, you don't have to be an ideator. You don't have to be a maverick. But know in that space how you can make an influence and how you can be in that innovation space. That's what I highly recommend. Um, if you want a starting point, this is really old, and it, it looks like a really old web website. It does not look futuristic. <laughs> but there's Brad and Kelly, and he has these. Um, they look like, okay, my nerd is going to come out. I did warn you. I'm part quirky and nerd. <laughs> um, they have, like, those magic Dungeons and Dragon cards of roles of innovations. Um, there's different roles of innovations um, that you can look at as a starting point to see, like, hey, where do I fit in these different types of roles? And there's a lot of other stuff out there. That's one that has grabbed me in the past that someone showed me. So those are my three tips. If you didn't get anything out of that, I'll just simplify it to find ways to do something different, do something different with purpose, and find how you can do that. And then from a future-ready standpoint, if you're in that space, you won't get stagnant, right? Because you're not doing the same thing over and over again. And I will tell you this on, from a personal journey standpoint, it, that common principle you can apply to yourself. Um, I can tell you that, and now my, you can hear my nervousness in my voice. I don't like being here <laughs> talking in front of you guys. Like very frank. Like if I look back 10 years, maybe even a little bit more, I was a shy, timid person just wanting to do my gaming a girlfriend would call like, hey, let's go out. No, I don't want to. <laughs> and in my career, I'd be told, you need to be more assertive. You need to speak up more. And I would give some suggestions, and they're like, uh, no. <laughs> and that was like really a downer. But if I didn't push myself to keep doing something different along the way or see opportunities in what I'm doing, I wouldn't be here today talking to you guys in a, not a tiny voice, but a little bit louder voice, but maybe I can be more confident. <laughs> And maybe I can stop saying maybe or I think. <laughs> but I think, like, personally, career-wise, those are the tips that I would recommend. Thank you, Natalie. Yeah, I'll go next. All right. Um, my name is Julia Welna. I uh, have been in technology since 2005. Previous to coming to Farm Credit, I worked for National Indemnity Company. Um, I was a software developer. I was a team leader business analyst, project manager. So I've kind of gone back and forth between the technology and also the in-between space. I have a short story to tell you about. It's going to lead into why, what I think that can help you in your career in the future. Being a new developer, the first thing I was given was adding more automation to a mainframe system, right? So our 
our, our people who are entering into the mainframe didn't have to enter as much. I could build out that logic. I was super excited to do it. Lots of if-then statements. Very exciting for my logical, analytical brain to work on. And I went to train these people because there was only like seven developers there at the time. So, you know, I was doing the training too. I went to train them and I was excited about what I had done. And the first thing that somebody said to me is, oh, you're the one that's taking our jobs away. And I was heartbroken. Like it almost brings tears to my eyes right now because I was like, what? you know, I thought that I was doing something so great. Um, so in my career, I found that my ability to coordinate between business and technology has been my most valuable asset and skill set. But it obviously didn't start very well because <laughs> I didn't know that that I was doing something good for the company, but it wasn't welcome in that unit, right? So knowing who you're talking to, knowing who your audience is, is really important. Um, and I only see the need for this ability growing and increasing as technology gets further and away, further and further away from business knowledge, right? You can't say, and I don't even know some of the terms that these guys just used, but you can't say some of that to your business teammates, even if you said cloud solution or Azure DevOps or any of that kind of stuff. A lot of our business teammates don't know what you're talking about, right? And you have to, as Jen said, work with your business teammates to really make sure that you understand their needs. So you have to be able to talk in their language and they, and you have to help them understand yours. You are a very valuable technology teammate if you speak the business's language and translate it into technology solutions that will help the business meet their needs and goals. This could be a role such as very specific role, right? Like a business analyst, a product manager, um, a project manager, right? They're, they're naturally in between, but I think that this skill set is important for anybody in technology. You will be a more valuable technology teammate if you can speak the language of the people that you're serving. <clears throat> so as technology changes quickly, teammates with skill sets that have this can have a lot of benefit to an organization. Many solutions and innovations are not easily translated into meeting business needs, as Jen has mentioned, or as you have mentioned too, right? They're not easily translated, but we need our business teammates to know what that is, and we, we can help fill the gap. But I think anybody in technology can help fill that gap. In order to successfully be able to do this skill set, I think there's three things that you really need to focus on, and what I've focused on, and what I've found my most valuable assets working in this role is communication, obviously, <laughs> um, humility, and adaptability. The ability to communicate with technology teammates and business teammates in their own language, but also be able to translate to each other is infinitely valuable. This is obviously the core skill set that I've been talking about, but in order to hone this skill, I would suggest focusing on listening, asking questions, and apply what, what you learn to make sure you understand both sides. Listen to your teammates and use the language that they're using when you talk to them right? If a teammate comes to you and says, a business teammate comes to you and says, I want to make sure that my customer can go in and do this, this, and this, right? And they didn't use the term workflow. 
they did not use the term, different terms that we use in technology, then don't introduce those into the conversation, right? Listen to what they're saying and try to use their language back to them. If you do use business language or technology language, make sure you're translating that into their language. I think it's really important to make sure that we're not using terms like UI if they didn't say it, for instance. And don't hesitate to ask the question if you don't understand them either, right? That's kind of a humility part of it piece, right? You're not dumb because you don't know. I work with technology teammates every single day, and even though I was a developer in a far past life, I understand few of the acronyms they use <laughs> and less of the new technology terms they use. But I just ask, what are you talking about? What does that translate for me? That helps, your, that helps your technology teammates grow to understand that you need to know that, but it also helps them learn to translate. So you can help your teammates get better at this too. You need to be curious. <laughs> I'm curious. I'm not an expert in what I do. Due to changes in technology and changed business needs, you must have the humility to admit when you do not know the information. Knowing that you need to know something, knowing that you don't, need to understand something is helpful, but also admitting that you don't know it relieves stress, right? Like if you're in a stressful meeting and you're just shaking your head and then you leave that meeting super stressed out because you don't know what just happened, that doesn't help anybody along the way. Um, it may not be the perfect time in the meeting, but go back and ask them, send them an email later. Make sure that you hone that skill set. Cause for me, obviously I did it very poorly <laughs> at the beginning, but it's taken a lot of time for me to get to the point where I'm willing to ask the question, but I'm also, it, I get better and better at it. It's like a muscle that I'm flexing, that translation of the business. We're working in an industry where lots of new tools and technologies are coming out constantly. An organ, organization's success can depend on its own ability to switch directions to these new technology changes before teammates need to be able to adjust to their changes with as little downtime as possible. This also means that being comfortable trying new and challenging things is a valuable skill to have, right? This is where the adaptability comes in. So I hit on communication, I hit on humility. We also have to be really adaptable because if we're gonna have iterative process like Jen mentioned, we have to be able to adapt when something changes because we might've went through PI planning and then in the middle, we have a different priority, right? And if nobody's experienced this, I don't know where you work because <laughs> <laughs> that's like a, a very common reality, right? But being able to adapt is really is a great skill set that I've found valuable for me and my teammates. Along with that, I've learned nothing else from the last, if you've learned nothing else from the last few years, we know that we have to be able to adapt. Being able to adapt with grace and a sense of calm helps adjust and switch directions quickly. So it helps your organization, right? Oftentimes we spend a lot of time in transition when changes happen, but if you contribute to your team's ability to continue to be productive as those new changes happen, your, your leaders and your teammates will notice you have invaluable skill when changes occur, right? I know that during COVID, I had particular experiences with a very challenging project we had here and I believe that I contributed very successfully to my teams being able to shift and change constantly on that project in a highly stressful environment for all of us. Just because I remained calm, I always found something productive we could do as things were shifting around. I gave people purpose, 
right, as things were coming at us and changing. One change I've seen in the last 10 years that there's more specialized technology roles also. So this doesn't just apply to business and technology, it's within technology too. Instead of developers being architects, UX, UI developers, uh, database, database engineers all in one, depending on the size of your organization, sometimes they're broken out into different roles. And somebody, who's a, somebody who is a UX, UI speaks a different language, even though you're in technology as your database engineers, right? So this is beneficial even within technology areas, right? Being able to speak each other's language. So I need to learn what a UX person is saying when they're doing it and try to speak back to them in their own language so we can make sure and be the most effective. So in closing, <laughs> the ability to communicate effectively between different business units and different roles can lead to more clarity on a solution that will meet the business needs and goals, which is always going to be valuable as we move through technology, no matter how quickly it changes. You're going to need less rework because you've been very clear, right? They're speaking your language. You're speaking theirs. We know more clearly what we need to be doing. How many times have you worked on something where there wasn't a clear message and you had to rework it because somebody didn't translate that properly? And increased productivity of our teams due to reduced time switching when it changes occurs, right? If you're calm, collected, as you make that change, you can do that more effectively. If you're able to combine your current role with the ability to coordinate between different business units and different roles, you're in a more diverse and more valuable teammate and individual contributor to your organization. Robin, you're up. Last but not least. So it's occurred to me that there's a lot of overlap in our stories, and <laughs> I will continue on that trend. Um, so from my perspective, I'm going to talk a little bit about my own personal journey over the last six or so years in my role as CIO. And they're really focused on things like culture, relationships, and processes that I believe has led to my personal success. And I think it's, it's good for everybody and their relationships and, and culture. So when I first started as the CIO at NFM, IT kind of had a bad brand. People looked at us as kind of a necessary evil, if you will, a cost center, kind of that ivory tower. They kind of call the shots and do what they want. And I've had stuff sitting in the backlog for 10 years, and they just work whatever they on whatever they want to work on, that kind of stuff. So uh, my number one goal was to improve the perception of IT. So the the first thing that I did was change our vision and mission statement for our division. And I'll just read those to you real quick. Our vision is to enable the business strategy and drive growth through technology solutions. So it very much goes hand in hand with what Jen was saying. Um, and our mission is to align with our business stakeholders to support the enterprise strategy with reliable, secure, scalable technology solutions that allow us to be better than our com competition. So I wanted to lay the foundation and make it very clear to our stakeholders and to my division that we are here for a purpose, and it is to enable the business. So that was a good foundation for us to set. And then there were several processes that we needed to implement. Work came into IT through 
you know, I know this person and I'm going to call her for a favor, you know, call, call your favorite programmer, that kind of stuff. There was not an organized way for work to come into IT. So we implemented a process. It's called the intake review process. We built a portal in ServiceNow where anybody that wants something from IT goes there and they make the request. And there's an intake review board that meets weekly and they review all of the new requests. And that team is responsible for working with the stakeholders to develop a, a business case or return on investment. And then each month, there is a governance committee, and that is a group of executives. It's basically our C-suite, um, and we meet to review those those ROI, the business cases, each month. And the governance committee is who prioritizes the work for IT then. And they decide with each new business case, whether it's accepted or denied, rejected, if they need more information, and then how it fits in the backlog for IT. So no longer can people say, well, IT is just working on, you know, the glitzy stuff or whatever they think is important and they're not listening to us. And the the results from those governance meetings are shared with the company. There's a portal where they can see exactly where all of the work is at and what has been added. We also created a formal PMO or a project management office because we had supervisors and business analysts and programmers and all sorts of people trying to be project managers. Um, and they all had their own different way of doing it. So now we have a formal PMO and they've added a level of transparency into how projects are run, consistency, transparency, and, you know, just, just this level of transparency that we'd never had in the past. So again, a lot of changes in processes. Another thing that we started to do was meet with our our business divisions on a quarterly basis. So all of me, uh, my senior leadership team and all of the business units that, and their senior leadership team, just to have an opportunity to sit down for a couple of hours, learn what challenges they may be having, if there's a technology solution we could provide them with to help them get feedback on recent implementations, you know, what could we do better, what went great. So just a really good opportunity to collaborate and build trust with our business units. And to your point, being sure that you're speaking their language is so important in those meetings and not coming in and throwing out a bunch of acronyms and technical terms that they don't understand. So all the while, we're building a lot of trust with these new processes. And then from a culture perspective, of course, we laid the foundation with our vision and our mission. So one of, the, one of the ways that I think to future-proof your career is be a leader that people want to follow. Be authentic, build trust, walk the talk, if you will, because I know uh, there's a lot of companies out there that don't do that. They, they say one thing and do quite another. And I think being able to communicate often and be very transparent with your team is something that's built a lot of trust um, in my division. So our executive team started meeting on a daily basis during the pandemic, and we continue to because we have found it so valuable. And almost every day I can share something from those meetings that is of value and, and opens up transparency for them. So again, building trust. And then I think empowering them you know, to make decisions also builds trust. And, and then let them see you fight like heck for them, you know, 
help them build their careers and knock down impediments for them, give them coaching and mentoring, and just always be available for them. One of the things that I do with my direct reports is not only monthly one-on-ones and monthly team meetings, but each week for 15 minutes, we just have a catch-up and we really try to keep it very personal and, you know, talk about families and friends and holidays and pets and stuff like that. And and just getting to know them on a personal level really help builds that, again, uh, builds that trust and the relationships. And then we also started an IT culture committee. We started it prior to the pandemic and it was our way to hear from our team what was really most important to them for reward, challenge, fun. What did they want to do in the workplace? And that committee did so many great things. And we watched our annual climate survey scores climb for several years and got a lot of great feedback. And then when we went home during the pandemic, and we kind of let that fizzle out, the culture committee. And I think we were also concerned about how do we handle this remote workforce and, you know, what are the right things to do? And so we are still 100% remote and will continue to be. That's um, one of NFM's strategy and their employer of choice uh, initiative. So we've started the culture committee back up and we're really focused on now how do we do all of these fun, fun things in a remote culture because now we're able to hire people from all over the place, not just in Omaha. And how do we include someone in El Paso, Texas, for example, or in the Ozarks? So it's it's been a, a fun and interesting challenge, but I think very important to really stay focused on how do we make this, you know, challenging, fun, rewarding work for them. And then the other thing I track really closely is turnover and we average in IT 3 to 5% every year. So I think that's very low compared to industry standards. So I like to think that some of what we're doing is working. And I think I'm going over. So in summary, I guess my advice for future-proofing your career would be to build trust with the enterprise. Let them know that you are there to enable them. Be easy to do business with. You know, remove friction from the processes if you can. And then be good stewards of the company core values, walk the talk, be good stewards of company assets, watch your expenses, automate when you can, you know, really be cognizant of being efficient. And then being a leader that people want to follow. So be authentic, listen, um, care about other, other people's well-being, about their personal lives too, know them as individuals, and then work hard to help them achieve their goals. And I think being a positive spirit is also um, really important, too, because it's contagious and people like to work with positive people. So that would be my advice. Thank you so much to our panelists um, for your thoughts on the topic. Does anybody have any questions? You talked about um, 100% remote workforce. What are some of the things that you do to help build relationships between people remotely that's been successful, I guess, to anybody. So one of the things we started early on was like each week, the teams, the individual scrum teams would set aside like 15 minutes every Monday to just get together on a team's call and, you know, talk about the weekend, no work related items. And then a lot of Friday afternoons, we have, you know, fun Friday where we'll do 
virtual games, that kind of stuff. And now that things are a little safer, we do have teams getting together in person for, you know, picnics or go to a happy hour, that kind of stuff. We did do a lot of virtual happy hours as well. And then we've got this culture committee. We do things like tomorrow's National Popcorn Day. So we used to would have brought popcorn into the office, but now we're having people post pictures in our our team's photo channel of, you know, toppings that they put on popcorn or, you know, kind of their popcorn machine or whatever, kind of goofy pictures of popcorn. So we just try to be really aware of keeping that personal part of the office still intact because you don't have the water cooler to go chat by anymore. So just that's, that's one of the things or some of the things we do. I don't know about anybody else. Yeah, we're hybrid at Farm Credit Services America. One tip though, that I like that our team does is we call it the dugout. We have a Zoom dugout that's just like on all the time. And on our team, we do a lot of pairing. So sometimes we're just coding away and it's in the dugout. So if we need to be like, hey, have you heard about this? Um, But what you had mentioned about being authentic, (laughs) talking about like your personal life with others, I think that's important as well. So the question is on the innovation sprint, the IP sprint. Does the during that time is there a coordinated focus um, during that sprint, or do you have allow people to do what uh, different things that they want to do? Um, I think that question was for Natalie and Jen. Yeah, I can start. So for each of our IP sprints, which is two weeks long, we're gathering ideas throughout the development sprints as far as ideas that it's kind of like Natalie alluded to. It's innovation with purpose. So we do want to make sure that, you know, the the areas that we're innovating in are going to add value either, you know, from a technology or a business perspective. So we typically map out our IP sprints and have some team innovation time, but then also allow each individual person on the team a few days just to kind of sharpen their skill sets in in areas that they feel they need to grow in from a development perspective. Yeah, and our team, it could be a mix. So for us, like there's been times where we've done some brainstorming sessions about like, what has everybody ideas? What are the things they want to learn? What do they want to solve? And then there's other times where we have a page of everybody putting their ideas. And then when it comes to that IP sprint planning, it was like, experiment, it's, it's coming up. Think about what you would want to do. Then we discuss as a team, like, ooh, I want to do this, I want to do that. And some pairs group together. Some people go on their solo ventures. And then sometimes it's just like learning because a, a thing that our team is doing heavily on is Kubernetes containerizing. And this is where Jen would say, would help communicate what's the benefit for the business, but <laughs> I know I'm talking nerd talk. And so, so some people would be like watching videos or seeing different ways of doing that. So it's a mix, but one thing, and we keep growing and getting better in how we use our IP sprints, but currently what we're doing at the end is we're sharing back within our team of what we learned and the outcomes of it. There's been some cool stuff that have come out of it. Now, now I'm going to brag. I told you I can keep talking about this. But we've done a safe, a safe stack app of like it was like a build linting tool because we had to migrate for our build agents. And I realized I'm talking really techie, but providing migrating to servers so that our development teams can deploy efficiently and making sure they have the right setup that they have. And then so this this cool UI showed like, hey, you need to fix this and this or it'll break for the development teams. So they're like if. If you let unleash your team, like with what they can do, there's a lot of great potential. So, and and they'll be happy. 
<laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> I have a question for Natalie. What is the Try Catch podcast that we're recording right now? Yes. Thank you for asking that. <laughs> <laughs> so the Try Catch podcast, it's a public podcast. It's available on various platforms, um, and it's intended for our IT community. And we really want to share different perspectives, new technologies, just our experiences of what we think our IT audience would care about. And there's some cool stuff out there. Plug in Sydney. She's producing right now. I, I'm sorry, virtual people. You might not be able to see her. But um, she was part of a women's in IT. And another fun fact is the podcast started as an experiment. And now it's live as a live. But um, she did one in women in IT with our first video cast experiment. So it is on YouTube. It's also on our podcast platform. So you can check that one out. There's also other great episodes that still still are good, even if they're older. Other ones I'd recommend is there's one on diversity um, with us being in women in IT. And also from an innovation standpoint, there's episodes on product discovery, product management. You guys can get inside scoop is that in the later in the year, we're planning on one on experiment design. So there's a lot of great stuff. I recommend you listen to it and you can listen in the car because we got a lot of things we need to do. <laughs> So to bridge kind of that personal and professional relationship, you guys talked about the rate at which technology changes. I'm in a liaison role, such as I'm actually on Julia's team here at Burn Credit. Um, what do you, what do each of you do personally uh, to keep up with those changes? You know, do you have a mentor? Do you subscribe to other podcasts coming to events like this? What can we do um, selfishly and for the rest of the group with, I'm not, you know, directly IT, I'm not a developer, but I, I want to keep up with that. What do you personally do and what would you suggest to us? Um, something that we could kind of take on, uh, on a regular basis. I'm happy to start. So I have a very broad network. So I attend a lot of events outside of uh, the work hours and like to network with my peers in the community and learn from them. Also, you know, there's there's so many meetups in the Omaha community, and there's just a lot of different events that vendors will host, and you can go and learn. And then my I start each day with the CIO magazine, which is also a really good way to learn about technology. And there's a ton of technical pubs out there that you can um, subscribe to for free. I would say that I am um, specifically at work. I will try to seek out the people that know those items, right? So if your architects are working on something and you hear about it, just go and ask them and have a conversation about it. So that's part of the curiosity, right? It's so so you can learn about the new technology because when I started one of my projects, it was on containers. And I remember a very specific conversation with the architect on that. And I was like, what is that? Because to me, that's something that you put something in and that has nothing to do with technology. But I came to appreciate it better when I went and talked to him. Now that was, I was specifically on the project, but then there's been a few other things where I've heard about it. And then I've went and talked to those experts. And then you create, like you said, that personal relationship with that person. And you start to build a network of people that can help you that you feel, because for me, it's, it's about comfort level of asking the question too, right? So the first time is hard. Second time is a little bit easier. And then you start to be able to ask them questions you go through. So 
I would encourage you to, when you hear something and you don't know about it, or you have projects that you hear about, go and ask, who can I ask about that? That's what I do in in my day-to-day work. Yeah, I would just add on to that a little bit. I think when we're at a point where we're wanting to make a technology decision to meet a business outcome, it really helps to define kind of what does end state look like and then get the right people together to do that research so that we come back with several different options because obviously there's there's a ton of technology that's available to us and we could choose pretty much any way to skin that cat. Uh, but at the end of the day, we need to know, does it meet the outcome that the business or our technology teams are looking for? What are the trade-offs that we need to consider? What's the speed to market? And what's kind of that final ROI? So I think I'd echo everything that everybody else said, but I think I rely a lot on our architecture and our development teams to provide insight into helping make those decisions. And I learn a ton along the way. I heard a lot about ROI or end state or knowing exactly what you want, but sometimes you don't know. You have to experiment and you have ambiguity. I think ambiguity is something that we deal a lot with in business now. Um, In my last role, I was launching, I don't know, maybe 35 products a year. And sometimes you don't know exactly what, you know, how how will they perform? Um, How do you deal with that when you don't really know the ROI of of a project? Or do you have room for experimentation? Yeah, I guess I can start. I think Experimentation is something that's pretty important to us, especially in the digital space. So on our customer-facing websites, we do run a lot of experiments to kind of test out hypotheses on how our customers are going to react to certain features on our website. I think the key is to make sure that you're limiting the scope or maybe time-boxing it to a reasonable amount of time and resources so that you're not chasing something that that doesn't exist and then making sure that you're measuring along the way so that you can adapt and and finally end up to maybe what that current state or what what the final state looks like or the final outcome. I would just say ditto. I mean, that's what we do too. We experiment a lot. We do a lot of proof of value, a lot of proof of concept. We try to fail fast. So you have to know how to measure success before you kind of kick that off and yeah, experiment but not take too much time because there's real work to be done. (laughs) The only thing I would add is if you have access to any amount of data that can lead you to a possible problem that supports that, right? What data can you find that helps you support what you're defining and what you're trying, what your goal you're trying to get to? I know that having data to support those is hard and it's a challenge, and it's a challenge for organizations overall to like collect their data in a helpful way for business, right? But if even if you can get to a small amount of it that can at least give people the sense that that's true and that's something that's an actual problem, I think that's another piece that I would encourage you to look at. So I don't have to deal with the ROI side of the fence, <laughs> but what I would say is like the root cause is you don't want your the people that you have to hold up to and the responsibility of the organization that you're wasting time, right? I think one thing is like really framing it, what you're trying to approach, doing it incrementally. But another thing that I see that sometimes we fall short on is knowing when to pivot. 
and staying true to what are you truly experimenting and what are those success factors. So I can think of a situation, everyone has good intentions, <laughs> right? And we're trying to test this out. And then you're like, okay, what are the success factors that truly say that this is a viable project, a viable approach? And then I come back and say like, okay, here's some concerns. We want to have a pilot group, right? But then even when we have that pilot group and it hasn't really truly tested that, yes, that has determined whether that that would meet the needs and be successful, we're rolling it out more to other teams. Like, uh, I'm cringing. So I think the way that you experiment and way you can learn faster, fail faster, that will help reduce the, okay, how are you wasting our time? And then make your devs happy because they can explore and do something. So. Okay, so um, you can't really have you know technology these days without thinking security, right? Or it's really hard to. So how do you guys in your role stay more proactive versus reactive to all of the security incidences that are coming about that we're hearing about with these big name companies? I can okay, I can take that one. Speaking of surround yourself with people that have diverse and strengths and SMEs. So on our team, we have an AppSec team. We have uh, different scans. And then if we're introducing something new and, so, and then be like, hey, I noticed you did this using this package magic from a third-party vendor. Why is that? But we have our checks and balances in place. And then if it's something that we're rolling out, I think we, it's something, even if we have that, that AppSec team that's thinking about it, we need to be responsible about that too, right? We, we always need to think about what's the impact, what's the potential vulnerabilities, and be conscious of that. Are we doing the right thing? But with experimentation, though, I also think that there's a, a place where you, where you test it internally, unless, but if you do it externally, then you also need to have more of that deliberate discussion of, like, are we doing the right thing? I know that, Jen, I think, was it your team or another team? where they, they did a great thing like, okay, we want to do this in this new technology stack, but how do we make sure that we're secure? And then they worked with the AppSec team to make sure that they're secure before they deployed it since, it since it had to be handled differently. So, Yeah, it wasn't, but I'm aware. Anytime that we introduce new technology at Farm Credit, it, need, it goes through our AppSec team to make sure that it can be scanned, you know, security vulnerabilities can be identified and that sort of thing. And then when those hit our teams, it is a non-negotiable we, we need to address it. Basically, there's some SLAs around low, medium, and high. Highs have a, obviously a shorter time frame that need to be addressed than mediums and lows. But yeah, I think it comes down to it's just kind of the cost of doing digital business. And I, I think as soon as you start to talk about reputation in the market and maybe you know the potential for compromising customer data and things like that, your business will get on board pretty quickly. Yeah, I, I mean, from a project perspective, we include the security team in what we're doing early and often. So we ensure that they're a part of the conversation. And anytime anything comes up, even if it's like as simple as like passing data from us to a vendor, and the vendor has a certain way of doing it, I go over and ask them like, is it okay to use this? Or a vendor wants to use a different chatting mechanism than we typically use. I will go and ask them if that's okay, right? Because oftentimes security incidences can relate, can can happen simply because somebody shared information in a location that wasn't secure. Not because of those bigger things that we think about securing. It's, you know, you put 
uh, a password or you put a, a social security number in a place that isn't appropriate, right? So those things can, those are the more often ones. So even checking up on how you're sharing information with a vendor or any outside source is something that I do really often on projects. And then just one additional thing that we do, uh, because all of that resonates very well with me as well, but we are a Berkshire Hathaway company, and uh, so we're subject to many assessments from Ernst & Young, who they're very sure to tell us what our risks are and put action plans into place to address any of them. So. Right. Well, thank you so much for being an active audience. Thank you to our panelists um, for participating. Congratulations to Women in Technology of the Heartland. Um, thank you so much for allowing us to be a part of your celebration. Um, that's a wrap on our first live audience event for the TriCatch podcast powered by EA2. 